Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. My name is Jeff. For those of you who may not have met me before, I'm one of the leaders here at Salt. Michael turned his off on Sunday, so it's possible. I think that may have been it. <laughs> Use your error, I guess. So I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Truth in Love. So in this series, we're kind of going over the idea of truth and how we can express that in a loving way, especially in a culture that very much denies truth and the existence of truth. So over the past several weeks, we've talked about, does truth exist? Can we know truth? Does God exist? And tonight we talk about the issue of the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus and why it matters. So this series has been a little bit unique for what we typically do here at SALT, as it has had a bit more of a focus on the apologetics, more of the the reasons behind what we believe as opposed to going verse by verse through a passage or a book of scripture. Although everything that we do present is also based in scripture. So I'm hoping that as we continue to go through this series that you'd really be more grounded in your faith, that you would see that we don't have a blind faith. No matter how many different people might come at us and accuse us of having a blind faith, that really there are good reasons for our faith and for the events that we read about in the Bible. And hopefully we've given you some resources throughout this series too that you can go and even dig deeper into these things. And that even if you don't necessarily feel the need to dig into them now, if you do later come to a point in your life where you are wrestling with some of these questions, or if you just want to better be able to answer some of your friends or colleagues or whoever who may be wrestling with these, that you would be able to still go back to some of these same resources and be able to have some solid answers. And I think the one thing that we really want to emphasize as well is not only do we believe in what the Bible has to say, but these apologetics, these reasons behind what we believe actually support that this is actually the most logical explanation for so many of these things. So again, just kind of building off of that, it's not a blind faith, but it is actually a very logical explanation. And I think we'll see that even with what we're gonna to cover tonight about the resurrection. But again, we can only barely just scratch the surface on really the depths of the things that we can study. And we'll definitely see that tonight as we talk about, a little bit about the resurrection. So I just want to encourage you that if you have missed any of our previous messages, that you can go to our link tree and find those recordings. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those and they'll kind of help set up a little bit of where we are now. And even going forward, if you happen to miss some of the future messages, you can also go there and be able to keep up with us. Before we jump into the resurrection, I just wanted to list some resources for you that I think are really impactful on the life of Jesus, and especially with the resurrection. 
And I know John especially probably has a list five times the size of this one, but this can at least give you some direction. The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, that's a very concise read. The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel is very focused on the resurrection. He also wrote The Case for Christ, which is a little bit more expansive into the life of Jesus. Evidence that Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. You really want to, and that thing's thick. And then just a few other names of some people that I would just encourage if you really want to hear more about their apologetics really in general. J. Warner Wallace, William Lane Craig, Frank Turek, and Norman Geisler, just to name a few. And I think part of what's interesting about even just this list is several of these guys, when they started doing their research, they set out to disprove Christianity. They did not believe and wanted to convince themselves that, that we're fools, that the Bible is not historically accurate. And these guys were converted through the just what they found in their studies. They, they found that the that the evidence truly was overwhelming for the case for Christianity. So those are just a few references that I would encourage you to dig into if you wanted to go deeper. All right, so now the resurrection. I just wanted to set this up with this quote by C.S. Lewis that I think will help get us to understand why the resurrection is so important and why it's so vital for our faith. Why should we care about somebody who lived 2,000 years ago who claimed to rise from the dead? C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. But this is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So just to kind of summarize what Lewis is, is saying here is Jesus is either Lord or he is a lunatic or a liar. He cannot simply be a good moral teacher. His claims do not leave that open to us. And I think that's important for us to recognize, especially in today's day and age, because if you go through any sort of public schooling, that is by far the thing you hear the most, that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. They don't want to offend the religious people who might believe in him as Lord, but they definitely don't believe that he was. And so they try to find this kind of middle ground. But again, the claims of Jesus himself do not give us that middle ground. Either he was Lord or he was not. 
And I think the question of whether or not he is Lord comes down to the resurrection. If Jesus was really raised from the dead, this is the greatest proof imaginable that he was and is the Son of God. And therefore, all of his claims that he made throughout his life and ministry are also validated by him rising from the dead. And I don't want to get too much into this because this isn't really the main focus for tonight. But over 80 times throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And I know on the surface that may not sound like a claim to deity, but this phrase, this title, goes back to Daniel 7, where it's very clearly a description of the Messiah, where we see God the Father in this passage described as the Ancient of Days, giving him an eternal kingdom and dominion over it. It's very clearly a messianic title. Jesus is very clearly and intentionally claiming deity when he calls himself the Son of Man. And this isn't, this isn't the only time we see a claim like this. I mean, you even see how the Pharisees pick up on the fact that when Jesus talks about God as his personal Father, they recognize that as a claim to deity. There's several more claims that Jesus made besides just the Son of Man, but dozens and dozens and dozens of times Jesus claims to be the Son of God in one way or another. Then you also see the miracles that he performed, just emphasizing that he is the Son of God. You see the prophecies that even he himself predicted relating to his betrayal, his death, and his rising from the dead. All these things together continue to support the fact that he knew he was God. He did not leave that open for us to interpret. So let's get into some of the evidence for the resurrection. Now again, I know we can't refute every claim that is out there, but I'm hoping that even just going through these few main questions will help us to see that this is a very logical explanation that Jesus really did rise from the dead. First question is, did Jesus really die? One of the theories that we see that, that tries to disprove the resurrection is what is called the swoon theory. And this suggests that Jesus did not actually die. It says that he basically was unconscious on the cross, so much so that the Roman guards actually thought that he was dead. They mistook him for, for being dead, and so then when they handed off the body, he wasn't actually dead. Don't know how that explains how he comes out of a sealed and guarded tomb. But I think there's a few other holes in this theory as well. The details in the gospel accounts really do support the fact that Jesus truly died. We see that the soldier pierces the side of Jesus with a spear. And this certainly would have killed him if he wasn't already dead. But we also read that the soldier did that because he found that he was already dead. Even just looking a little bit outside of scripture, what we know about the Roman crucifixion, they were experts in killing. They did not leave room for their victims to, be, to live. It was such a terrible form of punishment that they even had to invent a word to describe 
the kind of suffering that was experienced on the cross. The word excruciating was invented for crucifixion. The word literally means out of the cross. So I think it's just an interesting thing to think about. So maybe don't use the word excruciating unless you're actually being crucified. That's the only thing this is actually referring to. But just the fact that there is a word invented purely for crucifixion just gets at how brutal of a punishment it truly was. Death was inevitable for everyone who was hung on a cross. On top of that, the soldiers had a lot at stake when they were crucifying somebody. If there was any possibility that a criminal would have survived a crucifixion, that could come back and cause that soldier to be put to death. But again, they were experts in healing. They would know what a dead body looks like. They did this regularly. We also know that Jesus was scourged even before he was crucified, meaning that he was severely whipped and would have suffered terrible lacerations, would have already had a tremendous amount of blood loss even before he was nailed to that cross. This is why we have record of him not even being able to carry his cross, which would have been typical of a crucified criminal. He wasn't able to carry his cross all the way to the place where he was crucified because of how much he had already suffered. Once they were nailed to the cross, the way that these criminals typically would, be, would die is from asphyxiation. They would essentially suffocate because they were no longer able to pull themselves up to breathe. Again, this is just a long-suffering way that it was just a matter of time, not if, but when, these criminals would die. So the idea that Jesus could have possibly not died is extremely unlikely, just knowing what we know about crucifixion, just historically, how the Romans executed it. But just for a second, let's just imagine that maybe he did, that somehow he defied all the odds. And again, the scourging, that alone would often kill its victims. Jesus did not die from that, but we can gather that that was probably a big part of what led to him already being dead before the other criminals. But again, what if he actually did defy the odds? And again, ignoring the fact that the tomb was said to have been guarded and sealed. Just imagine you're the disciples. You find that Jesus somehow survived this. But you see him in this terribly weak and miserable condition, just barely clinging on to life. Do you really think that you would be so inspired by this person and choose to claim that he actually rose from the dead? On top of that, being willing to give your life for that cause, would that actually have been something that would motivate you and inspire you? I think that's a big part of why I think this theory really doesn't hold a lot of water. Not to mention the fact that, again, what we know about crucifixion is that there really wasn't room for the, for the person being crucified to live. Not to mention the fact that we have a lot of external, extra-biblical evidence to suggest that there really isn't a lot of debate as to whether or not Jesus died on 
the cross. Even secular sources do overwhelmingly agree that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. And I just want to mention this, that we know from Scripture that that death was not purely physical, that he also suffered greatly emotionally and spiritually. I just want to keep that kind of in perspective as we think about some of the reasons for the resurrection, thinking about why Jesus died for us and the significance that that had. Second question, was the tomb really empty? Now on the, on the surface, I think this is a this sounds like it can be a fairly strong argument. Like one of the questions that kind of comes from that is what if the disciples just happened to walk into the wrong tomb? What if they forgot which tomb he was buried in and happened to walk into an empty one? But I think what's interesting about this theory is really how the, the Jews and the Romans respond to the idea of the empty tomb. Now it would have been really easy for them if they knew which tomb Jesus actually was buried in for them to prove very easily, be like, hey, Jesus' followers, here's the body. But they are not able to do that. They were not able to silence the followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Gospels tell us that even before Jesus rose from the dead, that the Pharisees and the chief priests were actually concerned that Jesus might rise from the dead, or at least his disciples would steal the body and claim it. So again, that's why we see the tomb was sealed and guarded. But even after we see that the disciples are proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, the Jews did not believe. But what's interesting is, is their argument is not based on the tomb not being empty. They tend to agree that the tomb was empty. We even read about that in, again, the account in Matthew, that they were paid off, the soldiers were, to spread the lie that the, that the disciples came and stole the body. So again, that's not disputing an empty tomb. They're kind of agreeing, yes, the tomb is empty. They're just lying about how the tomb came to be empty. So I think this theory, this question of was the tomb actually empty, if you actually look back at what the kind of two sides were talking about, it actually does really affirm that the tomb truly was empty. So as ironic as it is, I think this question actually does further support the claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead and support the biblical account. So again, I can't get into every theory, but what about some others or some other objections? I really wish I had a little more time to get into this one, but I'm just going to very briefly just kind of mention it. It was kind of, have to take my word for it and do the research on your own. But a lot of people will come up and bring up the fact that there's some apparent contradictions in the gospel accounts. That there's some details that vary from one account to the other on the issue of the resurrection. In short, I know we've talked about this several times in this series already, but some of the small variants in their accounts actually does support the idea that it really happened. Like you think about a, a crime scene, if everyone says the exact same thing the exact same way, that's a pretty good sign that the story is fabricated. But if there's some variation from your different perspectives, 
that helps to show that there is some validity to what they saw, that they really are giving their personal eyewitness testimony. And so that's mostly what we see here in the different gospel accounts. And so some of the discrepancies that you'll see is some really simple things that actually can be pretty easily reconciled if you just do a little bit of work. But it's things like how many angels were present at the tomb, the number of women were there, and what they did immediately after discovering that the tomb was empty. And again, it's perspectives, right? Like one person saying, oh, there's, they only mention one angel, but they're just talking about this one angel who's actually giving the declaration that Jesus is not here, but is risen. They're not denying that there may have been more. You might have another account that says there's two angels, right? Like things like that. If you do a little bit of work in getting into it, you'll find that they are actually explainable, especially when you're talking about the different perspectives that they're already writing from. Another interesting thing to note on the accounts of the resurrection that really does support the biblical account is just simply the fact that women are mentioned as the ones who saw the resurrection and the empty tomb first. No offense, women. <laughs> no offense, ladies. But a woman's testimony at this time was not considered valid, or at least worth much. So nobody fabricating a story about a resurrection would ever, in their right mind, in this day and age, in the time of, this, of Jesus' resurrection, would have claimed that women were the first ones to see it. Nobody in their right mind would have done that. And yet, the consensus between all the Gospel accounts is that women were the first ones to see it. And again, I know there's more, but I just kind of wanted to lead now into what William, William Lane Craig actually has to say about some of these ideas. I think it will kind of help to summarize a little bit of kind of what to do with maybe some of these other theories. He says, I think people who push these alternate theories would admit, yes, our theories are impossible, but they're not as improbable as the idea that this spectacular miracle occurred. Now, what he's saying here is that these people promoting these different theories, they would admit that their own theories are pretty improbable. They would be able to admit that. What William Lane Craig goes on to say is that he believes that the main reason why they find ours so improbable is more of a philosophical question on believing that miracles can happen. And I think the main reason for that is people love their sin. They don't want the idea of having to be accountable to a God. They don't want a God to exist. If miracles exist, that's a strong indication that God exists. And if God exists, then that's, that means that we have to give an account to a God at some point. We have to be accountable to him. And I think that's a big reason why so many people are so reluctant to the idea of the existence of miracles, and in particular, as we think, are thinking about tonight, with the resurrection. William, William Lane Craig goes on to say that I would argue that the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead is not at all improbable. In fact, based on the evidence, it's the best explanation for what happened. What is improbable is the hypothesis that Jesus rose naturally from the dead. I think we can agree on that. Like if somebody dies, we don't just see them just randomly coming back up to life. That, I would agree, is outlandish. 
Any hypothesis would be more probable than saying the corpse of Jesus spontaneously came back to life. Again, this is kind of with the idea of without God, right? It didn't just happen. But the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't contradict science or any known facts of experience. All it requires is the hypothesis that God exists, and I think there are good independent reasons for believing that he does. So I think it just kind of comes back to, do we believe that miracles can happen? Do we believe there's a God who can perform miracles? And if we do, the resurrection becomes a lot more probable then. One more question to consider. Was Jesus seen alive after his death? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Jesus appearing to more than 500 people at a single time. And in this passage, he's essentially inviting the skeptics to go and ask these eyewitnesses. Now, at the time that he's writing this, it would have been several years later, but he even mentions how most of these 500 are still alive. And I think just that large number, now we have more specific accounts like in John and in the beginning of the book of Acts that talk about some of those encounters, not to mention the testimony over and over and over again of the apostles confirming this. But 500 at a single time really makes it pretty impossible for the whole idea of there just been a large hallucination or even really anything largely fabricated as well. Especially as we will look at in a second, 1 Corinthians 15 begins with a creed that was formed within a couple of years, possibly even months, of when Jesus rose from the dead. This creed was formed so early that it really helps dispel any idea that this was something that was just made up several years or decades later. It really confirms that this was the belief of the early church and the followers of Jesus. They truly saw the risen Jesus. And just a few passages that also talk about it, besides 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read about it in Acts 2, 10, and 13, just to name a few of the disciples personally confirming, yes, we saw the risen Jesus with our own eyes. One thing that I'm not even touching on tonight, which I wish, again, we had time to dig into, is just all the biblical prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. And I think that just helps make an even more compelling case for the resurrection of Jesus. Most of these books that talk about it, you think about you know, Isaiah, for example, with the passage of the suffering servant. That passage was written about 600 years or so before Jesus came. And these are some of the most reliable books that we have in the Bible. Like there's not a lot of disputing any of these Old Testament books for their reliability. And yet so many of these passages have prophecies about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we see Jesus fulfill these to such an overwhelming degree that I think it's really hard to come up with the idea that it was fabricated. Additionally, the testimony of the disciples not only do they make this case over and over and over again in the New Testament, but they really lived it. Now, if this did not happen, chances are a few of them, or even most of them, would recant, would recant or face persecution. 
And yet, none of them did. All of the disciples of Jesus were tremendously persecuted for their belief in the resurrection, for their belief as Jesus as the Messiah. And we actually have strong evidence to believe that several of them, if not most of them, were martyred for their faith. I think this just adds to the case of the resurrection. They were all willing to die, and at least several of them did for what they believed. Adding to that one more layer, we have testimonies of at least two of Jesus' half-brothers also going from, no, this guy's crazy, to seeing the risen Jesus and saying, yes, I believe, and I will lay down my life for this belief. The testimony of the disciples really does add strongly to the case for the resurrection. I just wanted to encourage us a little bit by just acknowledging the fact that even though there is a strong case, I think it can be a little bit difficult for us to fully grasp the idea of the resurrection. Like, no matter how compelling a case we might be able to make, I can't prove it to you. Like, Jesus is not physically here to prove that he is risen, right? And I think we can take a lot of comfort in the words that Jesus gave to Thomas in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now, if you know this, this story, Jesus has shown himself to the disciples, all being, you know, Judas has already killed himself after betraying Jesus. Thomas happened to be the one who was left out of the rest, right? Jesus has shown himself to the ten, and not Thomas. Now it says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And this is after all, already the word has gotten out, right? Like all the women have already shared their testimony of seeing the risen Jesus. And Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks, the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. I love the way that that passage just ends, just recognizing that there is a blessing for those of us who believe without having seen. In a lot of ways, we're here because of the testimony of Thomas and the other disciples. We cannot see Jesus physically, but we can still believe in him. He has left a strong case for his resurrection for us. And again, the testimony of those who've gone before I think we know, too, just our own personal experience, that many of us have experienced Jesus in one way or another. He is still revealing himself today, redeeming everyone who will come to him. 
and the lives that have been transformed by him furthers this testimony even more. We can take comfort in the fact that there is great evidence to support the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. So why is the resurrection so important? So I guess at this point, I'll just invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, I'll continue to set this up. We'll be kind of bouncing around in that passage. And I'll just say this now, bouncing around because we don't have time to go through that entire chapter. I think that chapter is worth at least a full series all by itself. There's just so much there. And it's so awesome that we have such a full chapter dedicated to this topic of the resurrection and why it matters. So again, I would just encourage you to dig in to that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. But why is the resurrection so important? Nothing is certain in life except death and taxes. I think we know this from our own experience. Like, how many of us know somebody who's in their 80s or 90s? I'm guessing most of us probably do. But how many of us, I'm curious if anybody in here knows anybody who's over the age of 100? How about 110? <laughs> so I think just from just polling the room, we know that death is a reality. We know that time has existed more than 110 years, and yet nobody knows somebody who is at least 110 years old. Death is coming for everyone. And as we talked about at the beginning of this series, truth is objective. It's true for everyone, everywhere, for all of time. It doesn't matter how much you believe, you might firmly believe, oh, I will never die. Death is still coming for you, unless Jesus comes back before them. But death is a certain reality for us. I was reminded of this Trip Lee song called Ready that just talks about death and being ready for it. And it's actually about his dad who died while he was a little bit younger, kind of suddenly, and just him anticipating death and being ready for it on his own. Some of the lyrics just say, death, I know I'm in your path. I know I'm not free from your grasp. I hear you. I hear your footsteps coming from behind. I know, I know that one, that any day it might be my time. Death is coming for all of us. Kind of like what that song is getting at, it's like it's like stalking us. We don't know when it will actually come for us. There's several other scriptures that speak to this idea as well. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Job 14, verse 5, Job says, Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Just him alluding to the fact that he knows that God has set his number of days. And then we read this in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Death is something none of us can avoid. So I just encourage us to be praying that verse, that last one. Teach us to number our days. We'll have breath, and only until God decides to not give us breath any longer. 
And I think the idea behind us thinking about death is that one, that we'd be prepared spiritually, that we'd be ready for our eternity. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you put your faith in him to save you from your sins? And then how are you living your life? Are you living in a way that is living in obedience to him, seeking to honor him with your life, knowing that our days are numbered, trying to make the most of them? This is part of why I think thinking about death is so important. But the resurrection of Jesus is the miracle of all miracles. It's the miracle that our entire faith hinges on. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. That's what we're going to read about in 1 Corinthians 15. And there's no hope for us. But as Lee Strobel says in The Case for Easter, The resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then that means everything. That is why the resurrection is so important. So now let's finally get into 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll see what Paul has to say about the resurrection. Again, the beginning of this chapter begins with a creed that dates back to within the first few years, if not months, of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's a very cool thing to realize, something I did not realize until I was preparing for this, just how early on this creed was formed. So even though this, this letter that Paul wrote was written many decades later, this creed was already very well established very early on, which is why Paul is able to quote it here. And this does give great credibility to the idea that the church did firmly believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus from the very beginning. This was not something that came up later. So now let's get into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Again, verses 3 through 7 are this creed that Paul is quoting here of the testimony of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and even some of his appearances after rising from the dead. And I think the first thing that just jumps out in these several verses is just how often it's referring to according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And we just see how it's alluding to the countless prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Not to mention the countless 
other ways the Old Testament pointed to him, as we see him in the sacraments, in the feasts, with the priesthood, the sacrifices themselves, the tabernacle, the kings. Everywhere we turn in the Old Testament, we see it's pointing to Jesus in one way or another. It's all ultimately about him. Then if we scoot down to verse 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verses 17 through 19, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, Christianity simply does not exist. We have nothing if Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's what these verses are making abundantly clear. Our justification is completely linked to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are saved because of Jesus' life. Our justification is completely linked to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are saved because of Jesus' righteous life, his vicarious death, and his triumphal resurrection. It was not enough for someone to simply die on our behalf. If it was just anybody else, then they simply would have just been dying for their own sins, and they would have had no ability to be of a substitute for us as the penalty would have been for themselves alone. But Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He was the sinless one, which made him a worthy substitute for us. In his death, he died on our behalf. And this is what we refer to as the great exchange. He took our sins upon himself paying the penalty that we all owed for those sins. And in turn, he bestows upon us the righteousness that he rightly earned in his life, his righteous life imputed to us. And we get the benefits of that as if we had always been righteous. The proof that this sacrifice on our behalf actually satisfied the wrath of God is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we are still dead in our sins. God's wrath would not have been satisfied and we would be without hope. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident that the price was truly paid in full. This is what we read in the beginning of that creed in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Christ died for our sins. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Scripture is abundantly clear that Jesus died in our place as he willingly laid down his life for us. 
that if we put our faith and trust in him, that we might be able to live forever with him. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This means that when we die, we will be raised just like Christ was raised. This is part of why the resurrection is so important. First fruits. Jesus was the first. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruits. Those of us who come after, who follow him, who put our faith and trust in him, will be raised just like he was, as well as those who have put their faith and trust in God's provisions even before the cross. But Christ is the preeminent one, the first fruits of the resurrection. All who put their faith and trust in him will one day be raised to an eternal life with him. But I also don't want to miss the fact that putting our faith and trust in Jesus also requires submission to him. This means that we are intending to submit every area of our lives to him. So as we think about issues surrounding gender, identity, sexuality, marriage, singleness, a bunch of these topics that we'll be covering in the coming weeks, these are areas of our lives that we must choose to live in submission to Jesus. Because of the life we now live, the life that Jesus has bought for us. We are no longer our own, but we choose to seek to live for the one who bought us at a price. Now in verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Here Paul is obviously speaking about some of his personal experience. But I think this whole idea of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is something that we see all around us in our culture. It's sad to think about how many people actually live this way. We want to live and do what is right in our own eyes. We want to live it up. We want to live for today. We all know that death is coming, but we want to just ignore that fact. We just want to live for today. We want to YOLO with our lives. People actually want this, which is part of the sad thing. This is really just a hopeless and pointless life. There's really no true purpose, nothing that will last beyond. Reality is, no matter how much of an impact we think we might make in this life, eventually, if this is all that there is, we will be forgotten and it will all be in vain. But this is not our reality. This is not the reality for anyone, even those who reject Jesus. There is a life to come. And the scary thing is, is those who choose to live in ignorance will not be benefited at all on the day of judgment. Ignorance will do nothing to help them or their cause. We will all one day have to give an account before the judge of the universe. This is why we must not be afraid to share with those of these coming realities. 
we must be willing to share that Jesus is the only way, that our hope is in a life to come. For the believer, the resurrection means the death of death. The second death will have no power over us. We will be raised to eternal life with Christ. This is a great thing for us to look forward to. And even then, our life now is not meaningless. We get to live the rest of our lives seeking to bring God glory and to make his name known. We get to petition with those who don't believe, sharing the gospel with them in the hopes that they will come to life in Christ. You know, we get to live for God's glory, the very thing that we'll be able to spend the rest of eternity doing. And we get to do that now. Jesus said in John 11, verses 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What a comfort for us, for those of us who know loved ones who have gone before, who have died, knowing that one day we will be reunited with them. This is a great comfort for us in our seasons of mourning. And for us, one day that death will be coming for us. But for the believer, death is simply just a doorway into the presence of our God, with whom we will get to spend the rest of eternity with. This is our blessed hope. Because he lives, we will also be raised just as he was. We'll be raised to an everlasting life. This is how 1 Corinthians 15 ends, looking at verses 51 through 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have an eternity of life with our God to look forward to. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow and we have eternity to look forward to.